In a culture of wild political correctness, Echo of Fidelity brings you godly content in a godless world. From thought-provoking interviews to inspirational stories of saints and heroes, our show is firmly rooted in Catholic tradition. This is Echo of Fidelity. Thank you very much for this invitation. Thank you very much for the opportunity uh, to speak to uh, people and friends of the American Society for the, uh, for the Defense of Tradition, Family and Property, TFP, and especially for its uh, student action. I would like to begin by introducing this statue, this image that I have in my back. Of course, Our Lady doesn't need to be introduced, but maybe this statue, yes. This is perhaps the first copy of the International Pilgrim Statue of a Lady of Fatima, done specifically to be pilgrim in Russia and in the Eastern countries. This statue that you see in my back has been in Russia many times. In 2003 or 4, it made a six-month-long pilgrimage in Siberia, touching every single Catholic parish and center in that huge area of Russia called Siberia. This statue has been also many times in the Ukraine. It has been many times in all those Eastern countries, uh, Ro Romania, Slovakia, Rom um, Moldavia, etc., etc. So it's with great honor that I give this interview at the feet of this pilgrim statue of a lady of Fatima, pilgrim in Russia, pilgrim in the Ukraine. And now I go into answering the first question that was uh, made. Why did Russia invade Ukraine? Well, the answer, of course, is not very simple. But you have to understand one point that perhaps, um, especially from an American point of view, is not readily understood. The Russian mentality is very different from our Western mentality. We, uh, we have a modern, let's call it, a democratic-oriented mentality, whereby we easily accept a democratically elected government as being legitimate. Russians have much more of a um, very, let's call it, old or backward mentality by which they, uh, they like a very strong man, a very strong person at the helm. This was so since the times of the Tsars, this was so during the Soviet period. This is so even today. So to attack the president of the Russian Federation, Vladimir Putin, as a, being a dictator, it doesn't make sense for a Russian because Russians love this type of strong man at the helm. That said, we have to um, bear in mind the history of the recent history of, from the Soviet Union up to our days. The Soviet Union, from a Russian nationalist point of view, was a golden period for Russia because Russia raised to the status of superpower alongside the United States. 
In fact, it was not so. The, the only real superpower in the 20th century were the United States, and Russia was basically a fake. But anyway, that was the perception. Now, when the uh, Iron Curtain crumbled in uh, 1989, 1990, then the Soviet Union dissolved in 1992, um, Russia went into a period of great uh, turmoil, and it became increasingly uh, weak, uh, weaker and weaker. In this context, Russians began to develop a sense of inferiority, uh, a complex of inferiority, whereby they were yearning to regain at least part of their old glory. And this is where uh, Vladimir Putin comes in. I would later tell, tell you the, uh, a bit of the story of this person. Um, he came in um, proclaiming himself the restorer the, um, uh, of, the, uh, of the glories of Russia, including the Soviet period. First, uh, well, first he was uh, minister in the Yeltsin period, uh, President Boris Yeltsin. Then he became president in the year 2000. He was re-elected up to 2008. Then he governed through uh, his henchman, uh, uh, Medvedev. Then he was re-elected. He changed the constitution and now he can govern forever. But anyway, the first thing Putin did, he... Um, um, reorganized and recentered, retook all the elements of power, recentering them in Moscow, in the government, uh, which is controlled in the Soviet times. It, it, it was controlled by the KGB. Now it's controlled by the FSB, the Federal uh, um, Security uh, Bureau, which is the same thing as KGB, the, the new name of the, K, of the KGB. I remember I interviewed one of the famous dissidents, Russian dissidents, Vladimir Bukovsky. Remember, there were three great dissidents, uh, Alexander Sholhenitsyn, uh, Andrei Sakharov, and uh, Boris uh, Bukovsky, um, um, uh, Vladimir Bukovsky. And he, um, he told me in 2002, keep an eye on Putin because He's reconstituting the Soviet Union with a different name. Indeed, he re-centered, re-gathered, uh, recompacted, so to speak, the assets of the old Soviet Union that had crumbled during the uh, Gorbachev and Yeltsin periods. When this was already done, he had recreated the, the strong centralist gov government, then he launched the imperial dream of Russia, who relaunched the imperial dream of Russia, that is, Russia regaining its status of superpower. Now, to regain its status of superpower, the very first thing that he needed was to regain control of the countries that had broken away from the Soviet Union, that had broken away from the Warsaw Pact. Of course, he couldn't regain uh, Poland or Hungary of those countries. So he, he began by re re regaining control of those areas more closely linked to the Soviet Union, uh, 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 Belarusia, Georgia, Chechnya, etc., etc. So this was a... 
um, and I'm answering the question, why did Russia invade the Ukraine? So you see, it, it was a necessity of its own expansionist spirit. Then in 2014 came the, came the invasion of Crimea, the creation of the two uh, pseudo-republics of um, uh, Donetsk and uh, uh, Lugansk on the eastern side of Ukraine under uh, Russian, uh, Russian um, influence, uh, they began to um, agitate the Transnistria, which is on the western side of Ukraine, bordering uh, Moldavia, in order to proclaim a democratic, a, uh, an independent republic, etc., etc. Back then, Putin was um, checking out the uh, degree of reaction the West would have. And the West didn't do anything. The West let him proclaim the uh, republics of Os Ossetia, uh, Ingushetia. The, the West let him take over Crimea, proclaim the republics of Donetsk and Lug Lugansk, agitate the Transnistria, etc. So he became sure that the West would not react in the next step of his imperialist expansion, which was, of course, Ukraine. Well, this is also, so first, first, first point, the invasion of U U Ukraine is perfectly within the strategic view uh, of Putin, the strategic view of this new Russia that he wants to create. Now, a second point is this. The Russian economy is in shambles. The Russian economy goes from, from bad to worse because it never really transformed itself into a modern economy. What there is of production in Russia, and I should have said this at the beginning of my, um, of my answer, I, I know Russia very well. I've been there many times. Uh, we from Italy, uh, with the campaign Luci Sulest, Lights Upon the East, we, we have dozens of projects going on in Russia. So it's a situation that I know very well. And I can tell you what works in the Russian economy is basically because of Western influence. Now, when things go bad at home, what do you do? You, you transfer the attention of people towards foreign um, uh, foreign uh, interventions, foreign foreign wars. It was so with Georgia, with Chechnya. It was so in Syria. Remember that Russia also intervened in Syria against the uh, Muslim uh, fundamentalists, etc., etc. So you sum all all these reasons, and you get a partial. I, I said partial because of of course there are so many other elements to be taken into uh, consideration, but you already have the basic elements of why Russia invaded the Ukraine. Second question. Some people claim that Putin is a new Charlemagne who wants to restore Christendom. Is that true? Well, that's a very good question because um, so many people today, and I'm speaking about conservatives, uh, they like Putin, whom they oppose to Western decadence, they say that he opposes LGBT ideology, uh, he uh, favors the family, etc., etc. So basically, they present him, uh, him 
as a Charlemagne or as a Constantine or anyway, as a person who's going to save the West from the uh, cultural and moral decadence. Is this so? In order to answer this with a certain depth, uh, please excuse me if I'm a, a bit specious, but I need to give um, a, a doctrinal introduction to this. You know, the Marxist concept of truth is very well explained by, by Karl Marx in his book, Thesis on Feuerbach. The 11th Thesis on Feuerbach, he says, truth is not that that is thought, but that that is done. So truth is not something intellectual, it's something practical. What is truth? In Marxist uh, philosophy, in Marxist thinking, doesn't make any sense to say, is this true, is this false? What makes sense is, does this conduce me to the implantation of communism? Does this favor communism? Does this favor what I want to do? If it favors, then it's good. For example, excuse me for the uh, shocking example, but it's literally true. If to get my way, I have to kill my mother, that assassination, that matricide becomes good because it's a, it's a thing that I have to do in order to attain the goal that I want. Now, this is the Marxist concept of truth. So you see, it's, nothing, it's not an orthodoxy, but an orthopraxis is what I do. Now, um, logically, uh, from this, logically comes a very pragmatic spirit. Russian communists and Soviet communists are very pragmatic, notwithstanding some um, idea, some people would think that they are ideologues. They're actually pragmatists. Take, for example, what would you say if I give you the example of a president who outlawed abortion, practically outlawed divorce, favored the family, outlawed homosexuality, reopened the church that had been persecuted by his predecessor, convoked two synods in order to establish the church. He brought back all the clergy that had been persecuted by his predecessor, and he called his people brothers. What would you say about such a president? You would say he was a good president, of course. Well, this president was, was Josef Vissarionovich Yugashvili, better known as Stalin. Indeed, when Stalin perceived that they would have to fight a war, that he needed a strong Russia, he directly abolished abortion, he almost abolished divorce, he favored the family in order to have people, in order to have citizens from whom to make soldiers in order to fight the war. Um, he understood that he had to govern with the Orthodox Church. So he reinstated, uh, so, so he refunded, uh, refounded the Orthodox Church that had been closed down and persecuted by his predecessor Lenin. Um, he called back from Siberia, from the concentration camps, all the Orthodox clergy that had been exiled 
to, to the concentration camps. He reopened all the churches. He called two synods, Synod of Moscow and the Synod of Lviv in Ukraine, in order to establish the Russian Orthodox Church. He refounded the so-called Moscow Patriarchate. So if you see what he did, well, he outlawed homosexuality. Homosexuality hadn't been actually um, made legal by Lenin, but Lenin had abolished all the Tsarist laws against homosexuality because he had a very uh, radical uh, minister of culture, Alexandra Kolentai, uh, who was the, the one who introduced all the cultural revolution in Russia, in, in, the, in, the, Soviet, in the Soviet Union. Well, Stalin finished with all that, and he, and he actually uh, reopened the churches, and he ref refounded the Russian Orthodox Church with the condition that the Orthodox Church become an instrument of the Soviet government, of the Soviet uh, state. Now, this is also very, very interesting. I will um, go into it a little bit further. Take, for example, the attitude the Bolshevik revolutionaries in 1970 adopted vis-à-vis -vis the imperial past. Unlike the French revolutionaries, the Jacobins, who destroyed all the uh, king's palaces and all what uh, re could uh, recall the Ancien Régime in France, the Bolsheviks, the Soviet Bolsheviks, they preserved all the imperial palaces. Lenin made a law forbidding to touch the imperial palaces. Why? Because, as I said first, Russians like the power. And he figured out that he had to fit into the Tsar's shoes, so to speak. He had to fit into this image of a strong autocrat and sacral ruler. This is why he preserved the uh, Winter Palace, which is now the Her Hermitage uh, uh, Museum. He preserved Tsarkoye Selo, the, uh, uh, the palace which is uh, some, some miles outside of St. Petersburg, etc., etc., etc. And this is why um, today, for example, if you go to St. Petersburg, the old Leningrad, and at midday, you go to the Basilica of St. Peter and St. Paul, right in the center of St. Petersburg. There's a beautiful uh, bell tower. At midday, it rings, it sounds, the Russian imperial anthem. You will say, but how, how can they, 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 uh, they, they sound the imperial anthem? because it's to give the idea to the people that the empire is still there. The Tsar today is called Vladimir Putin. They, are, they have this mentality. Another point, I said that the power is sacral. For them, what is uh, important is sacred Russia. They call it the Holy Russia. It's, uh, and this Russia is contained within the canonical territory of Holy Russia. And this is another, um, another reason why Russia has to occupy the spaces 
which they considered the canonical territory of Holy Russia. A little bit like Hitler spoke about the Lebensraum, the vital space for the German people, the, uh, the Volksraum, um, they speak of the canonical territory of Holy Russia. And this is another reason why they have to invade all these countries, because they consider them part of Holy Russia. Now, Holy Russia in two senses. First of all, that the person who rules Holy Russia is ipso facto holy. They venerate Stalin as a saint. If you, if you go to the Russian chur churches, you, you will see all over the place icons with, the, with uh, icons of Stalin with a saintly aura around his, uh, his head. You will, they, they sell in the streets uh, holy cards with Stalin, with a, with a holy aura. And you will see also this type of holy cards and icons of, icons of Putin. Because if Putin is governing govern holy Russia, ipso facto, he is also holy. Not because of any personal virtue, but because of the fact that he's governing holy Russia. In this holy Russia, the head of the sacrality of holy Russia is the Tsar, is the person who is concretely governing Russia. This, this Tsar has under him, under him, the state and the church, which form one. Um, the head of the Orthodox Church was the Tsar. And when Stalin reconstituted the Orthodox Church, he put it at the service of the Soviet, uh, of the Soviet Union. In order to be ordained an Orthodox priest, you needed to be part of the KGB. The patriarch, the so-called patriarch of Moscow, Kirill, he was a Soviet agent. His code, his code name was Tavarich Mihailovich, uh, Comrade Mihailovich. His predecessor, Patriarch Alexis, his code name was Tavarich Dvozdov. They were both agents of the KGB. Um, that was also so for uh, the clergy. This has more or less ended, but in any case, even today, uh, the Orthodox Church is part of the Russian state. No longer, Putin is no longer the head of the church. This was ended with the 1997 uh, new constitution of the Russian Federation. But in reality, he is like this. Now, Putin also understands, and I might say that this goes to his favor, but to his favor in the sense of this Marxist concept of orthopraxis that I explained. Um, he understands that if, if he lets Western decadence uh, 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 infiltrate Russia, Russia will crumble in a couple of years. Because we can withstand this sort of decadence for much longer. We will also crumble if this decadence continues. But we can withstand it much longer because our society is much sounder. It's much more sound. It's much more solid than Soviet than excuse me, Russian society. So he understands that he cannot permit 
homosexuality, rampant homosexuality. Be careful. Homosexuality is not outlawed in the Russian Federation. The only thing that is outlawed is homosexual propaganda to minors. But homosexual propaganda to adult audience is perfectly legal, is perfectly legitimate. Homosexual nightclubs and uh, places are perfectly legal, and indeed they, they abound both in St. Petersburg and Moscow, which is what I, the two cities that I know better. Um, so he's, he's not against homosexuality because it's, uh, it goes against um, Christian faith and Christian virtue. He's against homosexuality because he perceives, and he's right, he perceives in homosexuality an element of decadence and therefore of deliquescence of the social and cultural and spiritual fabric of the nation. He, su he supports Christianity. Yes, exactly as I said, he supports the Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate. Why? Because this church is part of his state. He was the head of this church and up to a certain point. Um, in this sense, he supports Christianity, in the sense that he supports Holy Russia. He is not against abortion. Um, Russia is the country with the, with the most radical, uh, more liberal abortion law in the world and with the highest abortion rates in the world. And Putin has not only uh, permitted this law to continue, but had, has even worsened this law in, I think, in 2017. So he's pro-abortion. Putin is pro-abortion. Russia is one of the very few countries that permits surrogate motherhood, what they, what they call here in Italy, womb to hire, surrogate motherhood. That is, you go and pay a Russian girl to have your own baby. Um, this is perfectly legal in Russia up to now. There is a, a, a law being, being discussed in the Duma, in Parliament, in order to restrain the surrogate motherhood to Russian residents. But you see, it's not a problem of morals. It's a problem of Russian spirit. Now, with this, I, I, um, I also answer another question. But we are told that Russia is pro-family, pro therefore Putin can't be see as bad as leftist leaders in the West, right? Well, I think that I, I, I already answered this question in my, previous, in my previous answer. He is pro-family because he perceives, and I repeat, rightly so, that the decadence of the family entices immediately the decadence of the nation, the decadence of the country, and he's for a very strong Russia. How does Russia treat the Catholic Church? Well, this is a very interesting question because it takes us to a, a, um, a very important element of the situation. 
which people not usually have in mind. In Russia, there are three types of religions. As I explained in my previous answer, there's a state religion, which is the Orthodox uh, Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, of the Patriarchate of Moscow. And this is very important because the Orthodox churches are autocephalous. They are, they are their own head because they are territorial churches. They are not universal. Catholic means universal. The Catholic Church is universal. The Orthodox churches are territorial. So there's the Moldavian Church, there's the Romanian Orthodox Church, etc., etc. Now, they have to, they want to um, uh, disseminate the uh, authority of the Patriarchate, Patriarchate of Moscow. Now, this is the official church of the state. This is the state church. The 1997 Constitution gives uh, freedom of conscience and freedom of religion, theoretically. In fact, the Orthodox Church is one and the same with the Russian government. For example, the Russian, the, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, Moscow Patriarchate, has the uh, control of tobacco and alcohol in Russia. And you know that <laughs> alcohol is consumed in very large quantities. Why? Because this is part of the, of the relations between the state and the church. They are one and the same. Then there's a second class religions, which are the three so-called official religions of Russia. First, uh, Judaism, uh, Hebrews. I really don't know why, because there are not that many Jews in Russia. But anyway, it's considered a traditional uh, Russian religion. Then Islam. Islam is considered a traditional Russian uh, religion for several reasons. One, because there were several Islamic Muslim countries within the Soviet Union. Uh, Turkmenistan, Arjibezistan, Arj Arj Kyrgyzstan, et uh, Chechenia, etc., etc., um, Karabash, Norogov, etc. So Islam is part of the Soviet spirit, is part of, of the Soviet, let's call it, family. And then for a, even a deeper reason, because um, Russians are, the, once I, I was uh, discussing with a uh, with a theologian from the uh, Patriarchate of Russia, of Moscow. This was in, 19, in 2005 in Moscow. And he said, scratch the Russians' skin and you will find a Tatar, an Eastern people. Uh, so Islam <coughs> is very much part of the Russian spirit and it's one of the official religions. You can see that, for example, today, one of the regiments that are attacking Ukraine are the Chechenian Muslim regiments, which officially under Russian command are invading the Ukraine. Then the third official religion of the Russian Federation is shamanism. Shamanism is witchcraft, especially in Siberia. And this is also very important because beyond the Orthodox religion, beyond, or I would say underneath the Orthodox religion, 
we always find a shamanic way of being. I remember once I, I, in a church, in an in a, in a Orthodox church, uh, I saw a person who was out of his mind. He was like this, sort of in ecstasy. And I asked a person who was with me, uh, what's going on with this, with this person? He said, no, he's contemplating Christ. Well, so you see this type of energetic, charismatic, Pentecostal uh, religiosity is very much part of the Russian soul. And this finds its, one, its, its uh, primitive, traditional expression in Russian shamanism. And this is why one of the uh, most influential uh, philosophers uh, in Russia, one of the main advisors to Vladimir Putin, Alexander Dugin, he says, there are two Russias. The, I don't remember now the exact word he uses, but the, the, the upper or public Russia and the profound or real Russia. And this deep Russia is what matters. And this deep Russia is very much into shamanism. Well, all the other religions, beginning with the Catholic one, are badly tolerated. Uh, I say badly tolerated because it's not that they, they go around killing Catholic priests, but the Catholic Church is literally persecuted in Russia. I know that this may come as a shock for Americans, but uh, as I said, I've been there many times. I know exactly what I'm talking about. For example, a Catholic Church cannot have the facade of a Catholic Church. The only Catholic Church with a facade of a Catholic Church is the Cathedral of St. Catherine on Nevsky Prospect in St. Petersburg. You'll say, well, the, the cathedral, cathedral of Moscow. Well, the Cathedral of, of Moscow is actually the Polish National Church. All the other churches have to be hidden behind anodynous facades and of normal uh, buildings. Be, uh, and behind those buildings, there can be churches. The Catholic Church cannot do any type of apostolate outside of strictly Catholic ambiences. For example, you cannot do processions. You cannot do public rosaries. I, I know that I'm speaking to the, the American TFP student action. I know that you do thousands and thousands of public rosaries. Well, those are forbidden in Russia. If you do a public rosary, the FSB, the ex-KGB, will, will, will come and take you in to the Lubyanka and question you, what are you doing? Because that is considered proselyte, anti-Russian proselytism. You cannot approach a Russian Orthodox in order to speak about Catholic religion because that's proselytism. I'll give you uh, two concrete examples so you can touch with your hands the situation of the Catholic Church. The Cathedral of Moscow, of the Mother of God in Moscow, <coughs> is um, it's a very, very large uh, property, and the church is in the back. Now, in the front, there's a garden separated from the streets. It's a corner separated from the, both streets by a low wall with several gates that you can come, you can go in and out freely. At a certain point, the former 
Archbishop of Moscow, whom I knew and know very well, Monsignor Tadeusz Kondrosevich, he, um, in the outside corner, he built a playground for children. You know, with, um, uh, with all those games that you normally have in a children's play, uh, playground. Well, the Moscow Patriarchate officially uh, protested with the Vatican because he was doing proselytism. Why? Because Orthodox children were going to play in the Catholic playground, and that's forbidden in the, in the Russian Federation. And there was an official note of protest from the Patriarchate of Moscow. This is the ambience that you have in Russia. A second example, and this was told to me by the uh, Father Caprio, Stefano Caprio, who was parish priest near Moscow, and he was expelled from Russia. By the way, I told you that this statue made a six-month pilgrimage in Siberia. Well, the bishop that organized that pilgrimage, uh, Monsignor Jerzy Matsur, he was expelled from Russia as a punishment for having organized a pilgrimage with this image. And mind you, he was extremely careful not to go to any Orthodox place. He just went exclusively to Catholic places, Catholic pray, uh, prayer centers, Catholic churches, Catholic um, oratories, etc. He was very careful with that. Notwithstanding his prudence, he was expelled from Russia because he took this statue in his diocese. Well, I was telling you the story of Father Stefano Caprio. He's Italian. He was expelled. Why? You know that in Italy, every parish has, has an oratory. An oratory is basically a playground for uh, the parish uh, 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 children. They go to play. They can also have drink uh, Coke and sandwiches and things like chips and things like that. And then they have catechism. It's a concept that was int introduced by St. John Bosco, who said children have to play and then they have to be catechized. They have to be taught. So catechism and games uh, in, within a Salesian or St. John Bosco system go together. And that's how all of Italian parishes work. They all have their oratory. Well, Father Caprio went and he, he was given this, uh, this parish in south of Moscow. And the first thing he did was an oratory. Again, there was an official protest of the uh, Moscow Patriarchate against him because he was enticing, he was um, bringing in uh, Orthodox children. And the, the Orthodox priest of the town went to protest with him. And he said, well, why don't we do, do something? I'll teach you how to do an oratory. Why don't you do your own Orthodox oratory, so there will be a Catholic oratory and an Orthodox oratory, and children can go to one or to the other. And the Orthodox priest said, yes, why not? But then as he began, he was removed because the Orthodox don't have the idea of catechism. Why? Because they don't need catechism. Why? Because if you are born Russian, you are Orthodox, period. <clears throat> 
And that, that's their idea. So they don't have catechism. They don't have, for example, they don't have homilies as we do, catechetical homilies, sermons. They don't have that because they don't need them. You are already Russian. You are one of ours, period. <clears throat> well, the Orthodox priest was removed. Father Caprio was expelled. This is the type of, um, of freedom the Catholic Church has. Another point, and with this, I finish this answer. You know that there is a Russian Catholic liturgy. There's a, uh, in Rome, there's even a church, the Russicum, um, which celebrates the Russian Catholic rite. Well, this Catholic, Catholic Russian rite is forbidden in Russia and in all the controlled areas of Russia. And this is a major point because 90, 80 or 90% of Ukrainian Catholics are of Byzantine rite, not Russian Byzantine, but Greek Byzantine. You've all heard of Monsignor Shevchuk, Miroslav Shevchuk, who is the, he's the head of the, um, of the uh, Ukrainian Catholic Greek Church. Well, this church will simply be destroyed if Russia takes over Ukraine because they don't tolerate the Byzantine Catholic rite because it attracts the Russian people. It's in Russian, um, or in this case, it's in Greek, in uh, Paleoslav, actually. Um, it's forbidden. They hardly tolerate the, Rus the Roman rite because they can always say, well, that's, that's Roman. This is not Russian. So you see, to answer the question, how does Russia treat the Catholic Church? This is the way Russia treats the Catholic Church. And I repeat, this is one of the major concerns that we Catholics should have with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Our Lady of Fatima prophesied that the errors of Russia would spread. Are we witnessing the fulfillment of that prophecy? Well, that's a very good question because it puts the, uh, the situation in the correct perspective. We have to add anything that uh, has to do with Russia. We have to look, uh, analyze it from the point of view of Our Lady of Fatima's message. Russia is the only country that is mentioned twice in the message of Our Lady of Fatima. First, as a chastisement. Um, Russia would spread its errors throughout the world, uh, promoting wars and persecutions. The Holy Father will suffer. The good will be martyred. Entire nations will be uh, 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 annihilated, etc., etc. At the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph. The Pope will consecrate Russia to my Immaculate Heart, and she will convert, and peace will be given to the world. So you see, first of all, Russia is mentioned as a punishment. And a lady was very uh, clear in saying the errors of Russia, whereby implicitly making a distinction between Russia as a people and the errors of Russia, which, are obvious, which is obviously communism. When a lady said these words, 13th of July, 1917, there was no communism in Russia yet. There was the uh, democratic, uh, social democrat government of Alexander 
Feodorovich Kerensky. So it made no sense to speak of the errors of Russia when our lady said, but she's a prophet and she was speaking of years to come. When some months later, Lenin did the Bolshevik uh, revolution, we all know the whole, the whole story. Now, a punishment, why? Because uh, we're not converting. Our Lady said the First World War was already a punishment for the sins of the world. If I came here to call for conversion and to call for the consecration to my Immaculate Heart, if you convert, you will have peace. If you don't convert, there will be a second war, which will begin in the pontificate of Pius XI. And that's what was World War II. If you still don't convert, Russia would spread its errors throughout the world. So you see, it's a series of calls to conversion, a series of rejections of this, to this call made by Our Lady, and therefore a series of punishments. Now, at the end, Our Lady said, my Immaculate Heart will triumph. The Pope will consecrate Russia to my Immaculate Heart, and Russia will convert. So you see, chronologically, she first mentions the triumph of the Immaculate Heart. She then mentions the consecration of Russia to her the Immaculate Heart, which hasn't been done in the terms Our Lady asked for. This is another problem that we can deal with some other time. But the consecration of Russia to her Immaculate Heart was never done in the terms requested by Our Lady. So that doesn't happen. So, and the conversion will only come afterwards. So triumph of the Immaculate Heart, the real consecration of Russia to her Immaculate Heart, then Russia will convert, and then Russia will, uh, and, and then peace will, give, will be given to the world. So when we speak about Russia today, we have to ask ourselves, are we speaking about Russia punishment, or are we speaking about Russia conversion, or converted Russia? Now, what does conversion mean? Conversion literally means to go back. When you drive and you do a conversion, you go, literally, you go back. What does conversion mean in this case? It means two things. First of all, conversion to the only true faith, which is the Holy Roman Catholic Church. Um, as long as Russia persists in its error, which is uh, schismatic and heretic, that is the so-called orthodox faith, it, will, it cannot be considered fully converted. You would say, well, but how can she convert now to the church uh, totally taken by progressivism and, uh, and modernism and all these things? I said, yes, but you see, progressivism is a cancer that is developing very quickly and very widespread in the church, but it's not the church. So in order to consider Russia really converted, she has to become Catholic. In the second place, 
it means to reject the errors of Russia. If a lady has denounced, has um, uh, pointed her finger to the errors of Russia, there cannot, there cannot be a conversion without the outspoken and overt rejection of these errors. Now, this hasn't happened yet. Indeed, Vladimir Putin says, and I, can, I have the quotes if you want, I'm fervently socialist. I'm fervently um, communist. I still conserve with great joy my card of the Communist Party. While many people have, um, have burned their, their, uh, their Communist Party card, I, I still have mine. He calls the Soviet Union, the Soviet period, especially the Stalinist period, a golden age for Russia. He said that the, the, um, the uh, downfall of the Soviet Union was one of the greatest catastrophes in Russian history. So how can we say that he is rejecting the errors of Russia when he's actually uh, reproposing them in another way? Now, can we say that Russia is converted? And this is the next question. What was your experience in Russia? Did you find high moral standards? This gives me the opportunity to, to, to answer yet further the, the, the previous uh, answer I was given. Um, what's the moral situation in Russia? To begin with, as I said, Russia is the country with most abortions in the world. Then the moral ambience in Russia is not, is not better than the moral ambience in the West. Perhaps it's a bit more hidden to public eye but it's not better. For example, when we used to go to Moscow in the first years, 1990s, there was only one hotel in, in Moscow, the uh, Rosia Hotel just in front of the Kremlin, the only hotel. Well, as soon as you got into your room, your phone be began to ring with a female voice offering her quotations services. And that was part of the deal with the hotel. This is the type, not so much so that we actually took the phone out of the hook and left it and, and left it out of the hook in order to avoid this type of uh, call that came in continuously. Today, if you walk on Nevsky Prospect, Nevsky Prospect is the Fifth Avenue, so to speak, of St. Petersburg. Every 10, 10 feet, you find a girl who offers her services or gives you a visiting card inviting you to, to some nightclub or you know, this, this sinful places of nightlife. Um, massage parlors, they're everywhere with huge signs showing what's going on inside. So don't tell me that there's a moralized ambience in Russia because there is not. So then the Catholic faith in Russia. That's another fake news. And those who know Russia directly, as I do, know that it's a fake news. I once was 
uh, in Russia during Easter, the, uh, the Eastern uh, Easter, which is one week after our Easter. Easter Sunday. I thought that the churches would be full. Churches were empty. Churches were empty. There's no more religious practice in Russia than there is in the West. Indeed, I, wrote, I, I read the numbers just a day ago, yesterday, about religious practice in U Ukraine is much higher than religious practice in Russia. You, you can say, but there are huge religious ceremonies. I say, yes, but be careful. There are patriotic ceremonies. I, once, um, I was once what, present to uh, the procession in honor of St. Alexander Nevsky. St. Alexander Nevsky was the person who founded modern Russia by beating the, uh, the German, the, uh, the uh, Teutonics. Um, and he's uh, venerated as a saint, not because of his private life, uh, but because he defeated the Germans and therefore he's a saint. Um, it, it was a huge procession, huge. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of people whom I didn't see in the churches. If you go to the Cathedral of St. Isaac, it's the official cathedral of the Russian authorities. You go to the cathedral of the Our Lady of Kazan, it's the cathedral in honor of Marshal Kutuzov, who defeated um, uh, the French in 1812. If you go to the Basilica of the Spilled Blood, it's not Our Lord's Spilled Blood, it's the assassination of Tsar Alexander II, etc., etc. Churches are patriotic places because, as I said, patriotism and faith go together. So there is no more religious practice in Russia than there is in other parts of the world. Indeed, there's 10 times more religious practice in Poland than in Russia, in Hungary than in, than in, than in Russia. So this is the type of moral ambience that we, that we find. One last question. What is the solution to the present crisis? First of all, this is a very good question, but it, it's not a difficult question. It's an impossible question because nobody has the solution except, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ and through Our Lady. But I would like to uh, mention one point. We are just coming out, and not yet, not quite, from two years of COVID-19 pandemic. During these two years, we, we have been brainwashed, literally brainwashed by propaganda surrounding the problem, the problems raised by COVID-19. Uh, vaccine, no vaccine. Uh, did the Chinese create the virus? No, they didn't. Yes, they did. Um, is the virus um, uh, yeah, political maneuver or no, it's not. We've all lived this two-year period of sterile polemics in which we have been accustomed to uh, sort, sort of temperamental exasperation. People, at least here in Europe, I don't know in the United States, but I will suppose it's the same or even worse in the sense that in the United States, things are always very clear-cut. So you are either here or here. So uh, the, 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 the animus has been exasperated to its very extreme. And this is why 
we also tend to analyze the Russian invasion of Ukraine within this climate of, I would call it, nervous exasperation caused by two years of uh, COVID-19 pandemic. So the very first thing that we have to do is get a sort of um, psychological distance, a serenity, a tranquility, in order to analyze the facts in an objective way. Now, I feel that this is very different. For example, how many friends of mine are in favor of Putin because he's pro-family, he's this? And when I argue, not against them, but I argue against this vision in order that they have a more objective vision, they don't accept it because they are literally sealed off from the real world. And this is a consequence, I think, of two years of COVID-19 pandemic propaganda. Um, So the first thing that I would say, the, the solution lies firstly in our own temperamental situation. We have to regain serenity. We have to regain objectivity. We have to regain a loftiness of mind and of spirit in order to be able to analyze things very clearly. A second point is this. There are situations in which I could speak two hours just about this, but I'm, I'm perceiving that time is running out. But there are situations in which we are presented with a fundamentally wrong choice. For example, here in Italy, 1919 from 1921, there was the Red Biennium. Italy was falling under under communist uh, uh, rule. Um, uh, There was a government that actually liked and wanted to imitate the Bolshevik revolution. Now, against that, there were two reactions. A Catholic reaction um, with the popular party, which was Catholic, but modernist, and left-leaning. It was a sort of democratic party. On the other hand, there was an anti-communist party who wanted to fight communism, and that was the fascist national party of Mussolini. Now, which one would you choose? Your anti-communist Catholic. Would you choose to be a Catholic, but liberal? Or would you choose to be anti-communist, but fascist? Well, that's a wrong choice. And our founder, Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira, back then said, no, why do I have to choose between two wrong choices? I'm Catholic and I'm anti-communist as I am anti-Nazi, as I am anti-fascist. Now, today we're being presented with an apparently Christian and pro-family Putin against the LGBT Uh, decadent West. Well, both are false alternatives. We have to be very, I don't know if the word lofty or very uh, very high spirits in order to uh, contemplate this situation, not from these two opposing views, but from a higher standpoint. And see the errors here, 
see the errors here. Third place, we have to put at the center what belongs at the center, that is, Holy Roman Catholic Church. And in this sense, we have the promise of Our Lady that Russia will convert, and therefore we have the promise that the world will convert. So both Russia and the decadent West will convert, and we will be heading towards the, uh, the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And this is what we have to ask for. This is what we have to point towards. A conversion whereby we reject the revolutionary process and we, and we embrace the Holy Roman Catholic Church, the Holy Roman Catholic faith in its entirety. And this can only come through prayer. And I finish very, very quickly with words that unfortunately I, I would not be able to read because they're a bit too long, but I suggest that you read, written by a Russian prince and Jesuit priest in the, in the 1800s, uh, Prince uh, Yuri Gagarin. He was descendant of the princes of Kiev. By the way, uh, you, we shouldn't say Kiev. Uh, Kiev is the Russian pronunciation, it's Kiev. He was descendant of the princess of Kiev. And he said, there's a great contradiction in Russia. Why? In the world, there are only two principles, the revolution and the Catholic Church. What's not Catholic is revolutionary. Now, there's a great contradiction in Russia because Russia presents itself in the 1800s, Russia presents itself as counter-revolutionary, but at the same time, it persecutes the church. Now, Russia will never be counter-revolutionary as long as it persecutes the church. So I, Prince Gagarin, say, convert. When you, my Russia, convert to the only true faith, then I will consider you counter-revolutionary. And this is what we have to do. We have to pray for the conversion of Russia, as we have to pray for the conversion of the West. Having said that, if there are no, no, more, no more questions, I'm very happy to have uh, given this uh, in interview to uh, the, TF the American TFP's Student Action. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on Echo of Fidelity. Visit our website at tfpstudentaction.org. God bless.